Hello, and welcome to another episode of the EPC podcast, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Barbara Vanotti, and I'm the Press and Communications Assistant at the European Policy Center. After the appointment of Benjamin Netanyahu as the new Israeli Prime Minister, the European Policy Center organized a Twitter space to discuss the new government's domestic and foreign agenda. Mihai Sebastian Kihaya, EPC Policy Analyst in the European Award Program, was joined by key experts to look into the prospects for Israel's relations with the EU, the US and other international actors. This episode forms the first part of a two-part podcast on the topic. Please listen to the first episode of the new government in Israel, domestic and foreign policy implications. Hello to everyone and welcome to this discussion on the new Israeli government and implications for Israel's domestic and foreign policy. My name is Mihai Kihaya, I'm a policy analyst for the European Policy Center and I have the pleasure to moderate this discussion. The new Israeli government took office at the end of December and it is led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu who returns to power. It's widely considered one of the most right-wing governments in history. The new administration has already taken several steps that undermine Israel's democracy. On top of this there are several controversial figures in key government positions and the administration has further proposed radical measures. Aside from this, we also have seen protests in the past several weeks and there are many concerns also regarding uh, foreign policy and key foreign policy uh, issues such as Iran's regional behavior, Iran's drive to acquire nuclear weapons, the expansion of Abraham Accords, which normalized relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Morocco, the war in Ukraine, of course, US relations with Israel and EU-Israel cooperation. To discuss all these issues, we are joined today by an excellent lineup of speakers. We have um, Dr. Azriel Bermant, who is a senior researcher at the Institute of International Relations in Prague. We have Dr. Maya Sion, who is the director of Israel-Europe Relations Program at the think tank Midvim. And last but not least, we have Dr. Aaron David Miller, who is a senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome to you all and thank you very much for joining us. And without further ado, I would turn to you, Azriel. Maybe you can give us a bit of an overview of what are the priorities of the new government, domestic, maybe also entering a bit into foreign policy. What's your take on this? Everything starts with Netanyahu, a prime minister who is, has legal problems and is seeking to find a way out of these problems and has formed, as you just mentioned, the most right-wing government in Israel's history. This government includes extreme right-wing parties that would never have been given a place at the cabinet table in the past. For example, when you have the Jewish Power Party and you've got religious Zionist party under Zalel Smotrich, together with ultra-Orthodox parties, so you've got ultra-nationalist parties combined with the Haredi parties that want to change completely, shall we say, overturn the status quo. And you have, first of all, as we've seen over the last few days, Netanyahu's Likud party, but not just his Likud party, also his bedfellows in the government want to overturn, they want to basically control the judiciary and the media. They want to use Israel's Knesset to override the Supreme Court and prevent the Supreme Court from striking down laws that are unconstitutional and illegal. The latest example is Netanyahu's clash with Israel's Supreme Court, 
over Arya Deri, the Shas leader, who has already been convicted of several uh, crimes, including bribery. And the Supreme Court made it very clear that Deri is not suitable to serve in the government. And Netanyahu deeply reluctantly was forced to fire him. But he's already said, and other members of the party have said, that they will try and find a way to reinstate Deri's. So this is already a clash with Israel's Supreme Court. The demands of the ultra-Orthodox parties will cause friction with Israel's secular public on issues such as public transportation on, on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath, and gender segregation in public spaces. We have seen the huge protests in Israel just on Saturday night. We had over 120,000 people, not just in Tel Aviv, also in Jerusalem and in Haifa, protesting against Israel, the efforts made by this new government to politicize Israel's judiciary and uh, moves that are very similar to what we've seen, for example, in Turkey under Erdogan and in Hungary under Viktor Orban. So these are very worrying developments. By the way, a lot of the most outspoken criticisms of Netanyahu do not come from left-wing politicians. They come actually from people who are hawks on the right, such as Gidon Saar and Moshe Bogi Alon. So we are living in a very interesting time in Israel, to put it mildly. Then we have the, the extreme right partners of Netanyahu who want to relax the rules of engagement in the West Bank. They want to legalize illegal settlements. And the fact that the responsibilities of the civil, civil administration and the government coordinator of, of, of activities in the territories are being moved from the, the defense minister to Batsalel Smotrich, a very problematic, provocative politician who's now in charge of settlements in the West Bank. This is going to cause confusion and a major friction between Israel and the Palestinians. You also have Itamar Ben-Gvir, the leader of Otzma Yudit, Jewish Power, who is now public security minister, who has the Israeli police forces under his control. So this could also cause major problems with Israel's Arab population. We had Ben-Gvir visiting the Temple Mount several weeks ago, which caused problems. And at the same time, of course, Netanyahu is talking about trying to obtain a, a normalization agreement with Saudi Arabia. But, but of course, the Abraham Accords could face major setbacks as a result of the actions of this new government. But Netanyahu, who has always made Iran the big priority, he's made life more complicated for himself because it's going to be increasingly difficult. Of course, this will damage relations with the United States. There's also this issue of Israel's position on Ukraine, which could create greater problems with the Americans because the indications are that Netanyahu is reluctant to condemn Russia in any shape or form. One more thing, if you want to finish on a positive note, we had Netanyahu meeting with King Abdullah of Jordan. So at least here, of course, there have been major difficulties in the past between Netanyahu and King Abdullah. At least here, he recognizes this was something in that he needed to calm the fears of the Jordanian. Overall, the picture is a worrying one. Thank you, Azrael, for giving us the domestic perspective and also, of course, bringing in the foreign policy aspects. On, on this note, I'll, I'll move to you, Maya, and I want to have your take on the impact of the new governments on EU-Israel relations. We have seen a lot of positive developments in the past year. On this side, what do you think will happen next? I want to give a short overview of the last decade, really briefly, and I call the decade under Netanyahu governments, which lasted from 2009 until 2020, a lost decade in EU-Israeli relations. And the reasons are detailed in an article I published in Mitvim two years ago. It was actually quite a good decade from an economic perspective, but political relations worsened considerably and there were lost opportunities 
So, for example, new framework agreement were not signed. Israel-EU relations are still working according to association agreement from 95 and an action plan from 2004. So really old agreements. I won't get into the details. I'll just mention why political relations deteriorated. And that is because of the EU's differentiation policy that actually inserted a territorial clause to all EU-Israeli agreements. And this differentiation policy actually caused Israel to cancel the Association Council. The next year, it was the EU that decided to not convene this Association Council. In 2015, the European Commission published guidelines of labeling Israeli settlement products, and that deteriorated the relations even further. And then from 2016 onwards, Netanyahu, who was not only prime minister, but also foreign minister during those years, moved from defense to offense. And he began using the good bilateral ties that Israel has with different EU member states to either soften or veto the EU's uh, Foreign Association Council decisions that were critical of Israel. So this last decade actually stands in contrast to the Bennett-Lapid government, which was established in June 2021. Lapid was the most pro-EU foreign minister since Tsipi Livni that ended her period in 2009. Less than one month into position as foreign minister, Lapid already visited Brussels. He met High Representative Joseph Borrell, and he met the EU 27 foreign ministers and addressed them. He did so before even visiting Paris or Berlin, which is really unprecedented for an Israeli foreign minister. And he asked to reconvene the Association Council. Now, it took the EU a long time to do so. It was a wasted time, I have to say. The Association Council, which is the highest political body that is able to advance the relations, only convened on 3rd of October, three months ago. And that was just three weeks before the elections in Israel took place. So that was a wasted time. Now, Mikhail, let me briefly address what has been achieved in the year and a half under Lapid as foreign minister and then later as prime minister. I already mentioned the reconvening of the Association Council. In addition, Israel signed an agreement to join Creative Europe in June 2022. And after a very long negotiation, an operational agreement between Europol and Israel police was concluded in September last year. Now, I expect that none of those two agreements would be ratified under Netanyahu government, and this is due to the territorial clause that that is in them. So the main concrete achievement that Lapid actually was successful in advancing was the Association Council. Perhaps even we'll see partnership priorities being negotiated with the EU, but I dare to say that we won't see them signed because that would be politically too difficult for the Netanyahu right-wing extreme government. You asked me, Mikhail, what are the current priorities? of the Netanyahu government and the EU. And there are at least two new circumstances which change the way that the EU actually views Israel. And first, as you mentioned, is the Russian war against Ukraine. And this has actually changed the EU's strategic outlook. So the EU is looking for allies and partners. And Israel can offer some important assets to Europe. We saw in the field of energy, the signature of the Memorandum of Understanding. Israel can export liquefied gas to Europe through Egypt. And in the field of security and defense, Israel has many assets, uh, be it experience and knowledge, advanced weapons, intelligence, uh, cyber capabilities, etc. You could see, for example, Germany is now looking to buy Aero 3 missiles from Israel. And this is just one example for the changing interest of member states in the European Union when it comes to, to Israel. So the only area of contention, and I say only with double quotation marks between Israel and the EU, is the Palestinian issue that the ongoing Israeli occupation and the creeping 
annexation that it does in the Western Bank. And it seems that under Netanyahu's extreme right-wing government with Ben Gvir and Smotrich, creeping annexation is not only back on the table, it will be accelerated. And I would then say that it is inevitable that Israeli government would actually find itself very quickly in two clashes with the EU. The first one is on the Palestinian issue, and the other one has to do with what Azriel was mentioning over the reforms in the judicial system, which if they would pass, the result would be a really serious degrading and backsliding of Israel democracy and even re- regime change in Israel. Thank you, Maya. I would like now to turn to you, Aaron, and ask you what's the calculation in uh, Washington? How does the, the Biden administration see the new government in Israel? Is this business as usual? You know, the administration spent the better part of its first year reacting to a Bennett-Lapid government. In a way, its organizing principle of the administration's policy was to do nothing that would facilitate or accelerate the breakup of that government and permit the return of one Benjamin Netanyahu. I think the administration now confronts a different set of realities. And the point of departure is a broader one. It basically is this, that governing is about choosing. That's what governing is all about. Nobody gets everything. And governments have to prioritize and decide what's of critical importance, what's feasible, what's politically manageable. And that sort of governing is choosing logic applies to the way the administration, and I believe, is reacting to the Netanyahu government. They clearly wish, in my judgment, that they didn't have to deal with it. Because President Biden has so many other priorities. And his domestic political situation, he will probably sometime announce this spring his intention to seek a second term. And now with a Republican House and a Democratic Party on the issue of Israel and Israeli-Palestinian peace that is showing some signs, I don't want to overanalyze this or exaggerate it, some signs of differing of opinion among Democrats, certainly among progressives, and then even traditional supporters of Israel, the political situation for an ambitious policy of either trying to push for major progress on either the Israeli-Palestinian issue or the issue that the Americans, I think, care much more about because it represents a much greater threat. That is to say, what to do about Iran's nuclear program and, and Iranian ambition. All of that is going to make dealing with this current political reality in Israel a very fraught affair. The administration has chosen, and I worked for a half a dozen administrations, Republican and Democrat, never, never, never have I seen any administration meet and greet a new Israeli government as quickly and as senior a level as this one. Ron Dermer, who is the Minister of Strategic Affairs, but in effect the real Israeli foreign minister, Natalie Cohn, was here 10 days ago. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was in Israel last week. Tony Blinken is due to show up on Monday. And it's clear to me the administration has chosen to embrace, uh, not confront, this new political reality. And I suspect that they've done that in order to put the onus of responsibility on Mr. Netanyahu. It's his government. He put it together. He's responsible for the appointment of three extremist ministers whose combined sensibilities represent, a, my judgment, a Jewish supremacist point of view, an anti-democratic point of view, a racist point of view, and a homophobic point of view. He is responsible for this government. And the administration, I believe, has chosen to embrace him with the intention of making it unmistakably clear that anything that happens, whether it's on the issue of judicial reform 
or this government's putative policies toward the West Bank and Jerusalem, anything that happens is now his responsibility. Now, that's a convenient talking point for now. Of course, the question then becomes, what if the extremist sentiments and sensibilities and policies that these ministers hold actually finds their way into an assertive Israeli policy with respect to two issues, binding Area C permanently to to the state of Israel and ensuring that Jerusalem can never again be divided. Those are the two basic objectives with respect to the Palestinians that these ministers who serve at Netanyahu's pleasure have identified for themselves. And my sense is that while they have made clear what their views are on some of these issues, support for a two-state solution, maintaining the status quo on the Haram Sharif Temple Mount, they are very reluctant either to suggest red lines, which of course, if they turn pink, and sometimes red lines do, would demonstrate weakness of the government, or frankly, what they are prepared to do beyond rhetoric, strong rhetoric, in response to actual policies. I suspect they're going to dodge this question as long as they possibly can. I think this president, for any number of reasons, will go to great lengths to avoid a public confrontation with the prime minister. One last point, and that is on the issue of Iran. We're entering a particularly fraught period. We're somewhere trapped between a JCPOA that is unlikely to happen on one hand and a period of time since 2018 where we've avoided a major crisis with Iran. We may be moving out of that period. And for this administration, Iran could trigger regional confrontation replete with plunging financial markets and rising oil prices if, in fact, you do end up with a serious Israeli-Iranian military confrontation, not predicting that, or an effort on the part of the United States to make good on the commitments now under four or five presidents that the U.S. will not allow the Iranians to produce a weapon. What our red lines are on that particular issue are also unknown. Thank you, Aaron. Indeed, uh, as you rightly pointed out, Iran brings another set of uh, challenges and puzzles that should be addressed, especially since a return to the GCPOA, to the nuclear deal with Iran seems off the table. And at the same time, there are also internal protests ongoing in, in Iran. There are many open questions about the US position, as you mentioned, but also about the new Israeli government options on Iran. But I'm sure all of these will be tackled in the second part of our podcast. We will continue our analysis of the impact of the new Israeli government in the days and weeks to come, including in the second part of this podcast. Until then, over and out.